When I was 17 years old, my parents took my sister and me to the Northeast on vacation, and it's the one and only time that I have ever set foot in New York City. I've never seen anything like it before or since. I can still remember the feeling of walking down the the bustling sidewalks of Manhattan, just staring like a Missouri boy that I am up at the skyscrapers, just just on the sidewalks, staring up the sides of them, soaring 1,000 feet and higher into the air. And I became disoriented and, and dizzy, and I was probably bumping into pedestrians, hurrying in the other direction, which is not a good idea in New York City. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. It was so far out of the realm of my experience. And since then, that was 1999, since then, 22 of the 25 tallest buildings in New York City have been constructed. In other words, 22 out of the 25 tallest buildings in New York City weren't there when I was there. And I still thought it was magnificent. To give you some perspective, when I stood on the observation deck of the Empire State Building's 86th floor, I was standing 400 feet higher than the top of the St. Louis Arch, which was, to that point in my life, the highest I had ever been. It was euphoric. Now, I'm no engineer, but I remember thinking at the age of 17, how deep must the foundations of these buildings go in order to support such soaring heights? Well, I'm glad you asked. The now tallest building in the Western Hemisphere is the One World Trade Center Tower, located near the Battery in downtown Manhattan. Uh, This building is, quite intentionally, 1,776 feet tall. And it has a foundation that descends 110 feet underground into the bedrock beneath Manhattan. Its concrete core is made up of ultra-high-density concrete, which registers up to 14,000 PSI, which is the strongest concrete ever used and is stronger than any naturally occurring rock on earth. The core runs all the way up the center of the building to the 104th floor and is designed to support the building's gravitational load and to withstand both seismic and wind forces. Now, why do I mention this? Why did I spend entirely too much time reading online articles in Architect and Structure magazine just so I could give you those few details about the foundation of One World Trade Center Tower. It's because what we have in Romans 8.28 is the tallest skyscraper in all of Scripture. Every pain, every suffering, every sickness, every groaning, every tear, every heartache, every trial, every temptation, every tribulation, every anxiety, every failure, every sin, every detail of your life will work for your everlasting glory if you love God and are called according to his purpose. There is 
no promise that soars higher than this one. That's what Paul means when he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is the soaring promise of God, which is able and intended and designed to give strength, comfort, hope, courage, and joy in every circumstance of your life. Nothing can happen to you, whether by circumstance or the sins of other people or your own sin, which is not ordained by God's purpose and governed by God's providence so as to work for your everlasting good. That is your everlasting glory and joy in the conformity of the image of Christ. But as all skyscrapers have massive foundations of concrete and steel running deep into the bedrock if they are to stand firm, so does this soaring promise of God have strong foundations that run deep into the bedrock of God's divine sovereignty. That's what we have in verses 29 and 30. Why can we believe the soaring promise of verse 28? On what basis can we believe that God will make all of the awful things that transpire in life turn out for our good? How can we have any confidence that that is true? Why can it be trusted to withstand the storms and the tremors of tribulation or the sheer gravitational pressure of life in a fallen world and not topple to the ground in a pile of dust and rubble? Because it rests upon the bedrock of sovereign grace and has a concrete and steel core running all the way up to the apex of glory. And we know, Paul says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why? How? How do we know that? How can we be sure? For or because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 28 is the soaring skyscraper of promise. Verses 29 and 30 are the strong foundation that holds up that promise. But my concern as I approach this text is that there are many of you who are trying to cling to the promise of verse 28 without understanding the foundation in verses 29 and 30. That would be like trying to build a skyscraper without digging a foundation. It will collapse under its own weight. Don't do that. You need the foundation that rests upon the bedrock of God's sovereignty if you can have any confidence that all the sufferings of this life are ordained, designed by God, and will work for your everlasting glory. So let Paul give you that foundation this morning. 
Sit underneath his teaching and let him put bedrock underneath your faith. If you'll allow me to employ the metaphor of the skyscraper for just a few minutes longer, I'd like to explain how these three verses fit together. Verse 28 is the promise. Okay, That's, that's the skyscraper stretching up into the heavens and beyond. All things. And in this context, Paul is talking about the sufferings and the groanings which we experience in life. That's clear from the previous verses and the verses which follow. All things, all sufferings, all groanings work for good to a particular group of people. Those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Now that good which God has designed all of our sufferings and groanings to work for, that good is our glorification. That day when we will be raised to everlasting life with a glorified soul in a glorified body, to a glorified life in a glorified creation which radiates with the glory of God. This good, this glorification is mentioned seven times in verses 17 to 30. So when, when, by the time we get to verse 28, when we hear Paul say, we know that all things, we know that those all things that he's talking about is groaning. All groaning works together for good. And by the time we get to verse 28, we know that good means glory. So we could turn verse 28 to say this. We know that all the groanings of this life will work for your everlasting glory. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. There's the good. In order that we may be glorified with him. Or I'm sorry, there's the all things and the glorified with him is the good. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, there's the all things, are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. There's the good. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There's the good. Verse 20, creation was subjected to futility. There's the all things. Not willing, but because willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's the good. Verse 23 And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. There's the all things. As we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, there's the good. Verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. There's the good to which we are headed. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the good of verse 28 is the glory of, for which God predestined us, and for which all of our groanings and all of our sufferings must work. That's the pinnacle of the skyscraper. The foundation of that skyscraper 
is the sovereign grace given to us in Christ Jesus before ages began. And the concrete and steel core that runs up the entire height of the edifice, connecting that foundational grace to the soaring pinnacle of glory, is the unbreakable column that runs from foreknowledge, through predestination, through calling, through justification, and up to glory. That's where I get the title of this message. By grace, there's the foundation, for glory, there's the apex, through groaning. And over the next two weeks, we're going to unpack those three words. We're going to unpack these three verses. But rather than starting with the skyscraper of verse 28 or the glory of verse 30, I'm going to begin with the foundation of verse 29. We're going to dig deep this morning. Because I'm convinced that you cannot have the promise of verse 28 You cannot have the glory of verse 30 without the foundation of sovereign grace in verse 29 or the groaning in verses 18 to 25. But I'm afraid that many of you do not know or do not accept what Paul means by grace. So this morning, I intend to show you that when Paul rests the promise that God works all of your groanings for your glory, verse 28, when he rests that promise upon the foundation of God's foreknowledge and predestination in verse 29, what he means is that you can know that all things work together for good because God has unconditionally elected a people for salvation. Those are the many brothers at the end of verse 29. God has unconditionally elected them for salvation without any reference to their merit, their works, their faith, or their own will. And those whom he chose, he predestined for glory in the image of his Son. I'm going to try to prove to you this morning that unconditional, divine, sovereign, electing grace is the foundation, indeed the only foundation, for the promise of eternal glory. Every other foundation you try to put underneath the promise of verse 28 will fail, and verse 28 will crumble to the ground if you reject the unconditional election of God. So over the next two weeks, I'm going to show you where this grace originates, how it's applied in the lives of individuals, and where it ultimately leads. So the foundation of the promise of verse 28 is verse 29. You see that from the first word, for or because. We know that God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his, verse, or to his purpose, verse 28, because or for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, the reason we know those who love God and are called of God will be glorified by God despite or through all of their groanings and sufferings of this life is because, says Paul, God foreknew them and predestined them for glory. Now, a lot of people read verse 29 and they think that what Paul is saying here is that God foreknows those who will choose him. He foreknows those who will believe the gospel and on that basis, he predestines them for glory. 
In other words, in eternity past, God looked down the corridors of time, down through the long ages of history. He surveyed all of the free decisions of all people. He saw all those who would believe on Christ, and he said, ah, there they are. There are the future believers. Those are the ones that I will predestine to be conformed into the image of my son. In other words, the very first link in the chain of redemption, so they say, is our choice. Our future choice foreseen in eternity past by God. And it is our choice which causes God's predestining of us, which initiates his calling of us, which results in his justifying us, which terminates in his glorifying of us. All of God's work in redemption, all of it, rests upon the foundation of my will, that is not true. And if that is the foundation of your life, your foundation will fail. By foreknowledge, Paul does not mean God's foreseeing of my future decision. In the Bible, foreknowledge when it is applied to God, is virtually synonymous with the word election. Such that when Paul says, those whom he foreknew, what he means is, those whom he chose. And I'm going to give you three reasons why, and then I'll give you a fourth. First, foreknowledge does not mean foreknowledge of one's faith. Because the doctrine of God's omniscience will not allow it to have this meaning. Simply put, God knows everything that has been, is, will be, or might have been in one eternal act. He is omniscient, all-knowing. Isaiah 46, 9, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. God knows all things, all events, all people, and all their decisions. God knows everything about every person who has ever or will ever live. Can we agree with that? Amen. Yet, in verse 29, Paul is referring to a particular group, isn't he? Those whom he foreknew. Which implies that there are those whom he foreknew and there are those whom he didn't. Therefore, the object of this foreknowledge cannot be a fact about certain people, like their faith, because God knows all facts about all people in all places at all times. In verse 29, God's foreknowledge by the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit is made particular. Those whom God foreknew. If Paul were referring to foreknowledge of facts like whether or not a person will believe and choose Christ, this would mean that there are some facts about some people which God doesn't foreknow, which is impossible. Second reason, foreknowledge does not mean foreknowledge of one's faith. is simply because this is not the way the word is used throughout Scripture when it is applied to God. 
Foreknowledge cannot mean the same thing when applied to God that it means when applied to man because man's knowledge is limited and God's knowledge is not. So I'm going to run through some passages where this word is used, where it occurs with reference to God, and I want you to tell me what it means. We'll start in the Old Testament. Genesis 18, verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. That word, chosen, for I have chosen him, is the word know, yada in the Hebrew. I have known him. And yet our Bibles just go ahead and translate it as chosen because it's obvious that that's what God means by the word. He hasn't just known Abraham as he knows everyone else on the face of the earth. He has chosen Abraham in a way that he hasn't chosen everyone else on the face of the earth. Or what about Jeremiah 1, where the prophet is recounting his prophetic call, and he says, now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, and watch this, these are three, um, three sentences that occur in parallel, three lines that occur in parallel. Now, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, first line. Second, before you were born, I consecrated you. Third line, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's, that's parallelism, which means that to know to consecrate, and to appoint all mean the same thing. This isn't mental knowledge of facts about people. God is saying, Jeremiah, I chose you. I consecrated you. I appointed you to be my prophet to the nations. Or what about Amos 3.2, where God is speaking to the people of Israel, and he says, you only have I known. Of all the families of the earth. Did God know the Hittites. And the Amalekites. And the Philistines. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And the Egyptians. Did God know all of those people? Yes. God knows everything. So the know which God means here. Must be something different than just knowing about them. Clearly what he means is, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Jesus spoke the same way. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives this terrifying warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, clearly the Son of God knows all things about all people, including all workers of lawlessness. So when he says, I never knew you, he cannot mean, I never knew that you were a worker of lawlessness. I never knew that about you. We get here to the day of judgment, and I'm, I'm, frankly, I'm surprised. 
No. I never knew you must mean something like I never knew you savingly. I was never in covenant with you. This is why Paul uses the verb to know with God as the subject in the same way in Galatians 4 when he says, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slave you want to be once more? Clearly, to be known by God must mean something like to be savingly loved by God, to be in covenant with God. It cannot mean to have God know some fact about you like your faith. Because that would be true of all people in all places at all times, while what Paul is speaking of here by knowledge is something that is particular to those who believe. In short, every time, every time in Scripture, the word know or foreknow, is used of God with reference to man every time. It means something like chose, loved, entered into covenant with. It's used the same way, same word, of the way a husband knows his wife in the way that he does not know any other. That is intimately, covenantally, and particularly. Third, foreknowledge cannot mean foreknowledge of faith because that would make my will the determining factor in my salvation when the Bible uniformly, repeatedly, explicitly, and unapologetically claims that God's will is determinative in the matter of salvation. Now, let me give you just a few samplings of the biblical picture. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Note that it is the Son's will which determines who knows the Father and who does not. John six thirty seven and 39 and 44 All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Just ask yourselves these questions. Who's going to be raised up on the last day? All who come to Jesus Who comes to Jesus? All that the Father has given to Jesus and draws to Jesus. It's the Father's giving, that is his choosing, and the Father's drawing, that is his calling, that determines man's coming and rising. Or John 15, 16, when Jesus tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. Whose will does Jesus make determinative in that verse? The disciples' will or his will? His. 
Or what about Acts 13, 48, where Luke says that when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Ask yourself, who believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life. Why did they believe? Because they were appointed to eternal life. Who appointed them to eternal life? God did So which came first, the faith or the appointment, that is the election? The election came first and brought forth the faith. Or Romans 9.15, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Who determines which receives mercy and which receives judgment? It is not human will. It is the will of God. I think that verse ought to settle it for us. So clearly the view of foreknowledge that says that God looks down and sees whose will is disposed rightly and he chooses them on that basis, that makes human will determinative in who receives mercy when in the very next chapter Paul says it's not human will. It's God's will. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Who chose whom from before the foundation of the world? God chose us. According to whose purpose were we predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ? According to the gracious purpose of God's will. For whose praise were we chosen and predestined? For the praise of God's glorious grace. It seems to me that many people have turned this passage up on its head. Because if my choice of Christ, if my purpose, if my willing foreseen by God in eternity past is determinative in my destiny, then it is not God who receives the praise for his glorious grace. It is me who receives praise for my rightly disposed will. And that, I suggest to you, is blasphemy. Now, I could mention other arguments like... If God were to look down the corridors of time and survey the mass of sinful humanity, what exactly would he see? Would he see people willing and ready to repent of their sins, to trust in him, to embrace Christ, if only Christ will be preached to them? Not according to Paul. According to Paul, what he would find is a people dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, a people hostile towards him, Romans 8.7, a people not understanding and not seeking for God, Romans 3.10. He would find a people unwilling and unable to repent and believe apart from the sovereign awakening power of the Holy Spirit that comes through the call of God. If we look at Romans 8.30, where does that call come from? That call out of death and into life. From God, and whom does he call? Those whom he has 
predestined, which puts us right back where we started. Now, I'm well aware, because I've been around the block a few times teaching the doctrine of election, that there are some of you who will refuse to see this because you do not like to think of God as an electing God who has a particular love for a particular people, a God who chooses some but does not choose all, a God who saves some but does not save all. And I want to say to you that I understand that sentiment because I've been where you are. I remember having my worldview, my theology, with which I was very comfortable, rocked by some preacher who would relentlessly point me to scriptures that I had either overlooked or didn't want to dig into. And I remember how deeply unsettling it was on both an intellectual and an emotional level, and I'm sympathetic to that struggle. I would not preach this if I didn't think it important. If I didn't think that your deep and unshakable joy in the midst of every trial depended upon this. But it does. The connection between verses 28 and 29 proves that it does. The only way that you can really know that God will work all things, all of your groaning for your glory, is if you know that God's saving grace was given to you in eternity past by an act of God's sovereign will and not your own decision. If, in the final analysis, your choice, your will was determinative in your salvation, then you can have no real lasting assurance that you will not abandon Christ when the suffering becomes too terrible. If your will is finally determinative in coming to faith, then you can have no real assurance that your faith will not fail when you reach the end of your natural pain tolerance and thoughts of, where is God? Why would he do this to me? Begin to flood your mind and assault your soul. On the other hand, though, if... While you were dead in trespasses and sins, not seeking God, hostile towards him, God looked upon you in sovereign mercy and chose you and effectually called you according to his infallible purpose of election, then your faith will persevere as long as God's purpose endures, which is forever. If you did not choose God, but rather God chose you and called you and raised you by his divine power to life and faith, and that in the final analysis is why you believe, then there is no power of hell, there is no scheme of man, there is no weakness of your faith that will ever pluck you from God's hand. If your salvation rests entirely upon the omnipotent power and sovereign purpose of God, then no degree of suffering can shatter your faith. There can be no infallible assurance of salvation apart from the unconditional election of God. So I'm going to press this point home. Your emotional struggle with the doctrine of election is that God does not choose everyone. I get it. I understand that's troubling. I think there are good responses to that. I think there are ways of thinking through that that make it less troubling, that don't 
that don't force you to rip Romans 9 and a hundred other chapters out of your Bible. All I'm saying this morning is that taking foreknowledge in verse 29 to mean foreknowledge of who will choose Christ and making predestination rely upon the will of man rather than the will of God does not get you out of the trouble. This entire chain of events described in verses 29 to 30 is particular. It is not universal. The very same group, no more, no less, who are foreknown and predestined in the beginning are the very same group who are called and justified in the middle and are the very same group who are glorified at the end. That's the way the grammar works. Paul is referring to a particular subset of humanity throughout. So ask yourself this question. Is everyone going to be glorified? No. We know that's not true. The Bible does not teach a universal reconciliation. Some, many, will be raised to eternal destruction. So then, if not everyone will be glorified, will everyone be justified? No. We know that isn't true. Not only because the Bible is equally clear that not everyone believes, but also because the same number who are justified will be glorified, no more, no less, and we already agreed that not everyone will be glorified. So then, if not everyone is glorified and not everyone is justified, then will everyone be called? No. For all those who are called are justified and all those who are justified are glorified. And we already established that not everyone is going to be justified or glorified. Not only that, but all those who are called are justified, which must mean that this call does something. It's always effective. No one is called in the way that Paul speaks of here who doesn't actually come to faith and is justified and therefore is glorified. This call, in other words, is a particular call, and it is an effectual call, and it is an irresistible call. It actually creates the faith that it calls forth. But wait, if foreknowledge means foreknowledge of one's faith, and if faith is the result of calling, but not everyone is called then what exactly is God foreseeing but a faith which he himself created through a call which was particular and effectual? And so once again, no matter which way we approach it, from the beginning or from the end, we're right back at an unconditional sovereign choice of God. You cannot escape unconditional election without rejecting this word. Are there questions remaining? Absolutely. What about 1 Timothy 2.4, which says that God wills all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Or, or what about 2 Peter 3.9, which says that God is unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? Yeah, those are true as well. They're in the Bible too. And there is a way to fit them together with what we have here in Romans 8 and Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and John 6 and John 10 and Genesis 18 and so on, right? But it's not our purpose to deal with those questions this morning. We'll deal with those a little bit later when we get to Romans 9. Well, why wouldn't God choose everyone? 
Well, I think my first answer to that question is, I don't know. I thought a lot about that. I've come up with some responses I think are possible. The best I can do is that in Romans 9.22, Paul says that God desired to show his wrath and to make his power known, but I rather prefer to think that God is not required to give an account of, uh, of himself to man for his willing and his doing. We're not judges of God, and we can't tell him how he ought to have acted. Well, what about... What about my kids and what about my spouse and my mom and my dad and my sibling and my, my friend? If they come to Christ in real repentance and faith, they too will be saved. That promise, which by the way occurs just two chapters later in Romans ten thirteen, is also infallibly true. Even with, even because of the doctrine of election. There is really only one question I'm interested in answering this morning, and that's this one. Am I one of God's elect? Am I foreknown and predestined for glory? That's the question that is directly pertinent to our text today. And that's a question that can be answered by our text. Now, I told you earlier that the good for which God works out all things in verse 28 is the conformity to the image of his son in verse 29, and is the glory in verse 30. God is working all of your groaning for your glory, which is conformity into God's image. But for whom does God work all things for good, according to verse 28? Paul gives two restrictions there. It's not a universal promise. Whom does God glorify into the image of Christ in verse 29? Those whom he foreknew and predestined. For whom does God work all things together for good in verse 28? Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So if you want to know if you are among those who are foreknown and predestined for glory, you need to ask yourself if you're one of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we have before us two evidences of election. Evidence number one, do I love God? I want you to think through what Paul has said in Romans 8 regarding the unregenerate man who's still in the flesh. He said that his flesh is, or his mind is set on the flesh. It is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. It rejects God's rule and God's reign over his life. Indeed, it cannot submit to it. Romans 8, 7 through 8. Now that is miles apart from Paul's description here in verse 28 of someone who loves God. Therefore, one who loves God must be one whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit. One who willingly, gladly, joyfully embraces God's rule and reign in his life. I want you to note this because it's really, really important in this question. Those who love God, they certainly feel affection for God. It's feelings. You don't love God if you don't feel love for God. But lots of people think they feel affection for a God whom they do not really love. 
According to Paul in Romans 8, hostility, that is hatred towards God, manifests itself in an unwillingness and an inability to submit to God's law and to embrace God's rule and reign in their life. Therefore, the true test of whether you love God is whether you willingly and joyfully submit to God's law. The true test of whether you love God is whether you willingly and joyfully submit to God as your ruler and king of your life, whose rule and whose reign is exercised through his word. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. So examine yourself in this and ask yourself, do I love God? Has my hostility towards his law, towards his word, towards his divine right to tell me what to believe and how to live, has that natural innate hostility been turned, melted into a willing and joyful submission? If the answer is yes, you have been chosen by God from before the foundations of the earth. Second question, am I called of God? This is the second evidence of election. Now, we're going to study what called means next time. But we've already seen that this call is particular and it's effectual. It inevitably and infallibly leads to faith in Christ. That's how we can know that all those who are called are justified and all those who are justified are glorified. Calling leads to justification always, and justification is by faith alone. So in order to determine whether you are called according to God's purpose, you need to examine whether or not you believe the gospel. Do you have biblical faith? Have you embraced with your heart and your mind the truth that all of your righteousness is as filthy rags and accounts you nothing in the sight of God? Have you embraced with your heart and your mind the atoning death of Christ as the only the only sufficient payment for the debt of sin that you owe, such that you have ceased trying to satisfy God's wrath with your own payments? Have you embraced with your heart and with your mind the free righteousness of Christ, which alone is able to make you acceptable in the sight of God and to gain you entrance into the everlasting kingdom? When we sing, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness, does your heart say, yes, that's what I believe. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Does your heart rise up within you and say, yes and amen? Then you've been called of God. The evidence of love for God is obedience, and the evidence of being called of God is faith. So if you can answer yes to those questions, you are predestined for glory. And every suffering, every groaning which you encounter in this life will work for that end. If you can answer yes to those questions, you are among the elect and God has chosen you in Christ from before the foundations of the world. Now if you cannot answer yes to those questions but would like to. Do not think for a moment that you cannot come to Christ until you know whether you're one of God's elect. That is not how it works. 
assurance of our election comes through faith, not apart from faith, and certainly not before faith. So to you, who cannot answer yes to those questions, no, I don't love God, and no, I don't trust in God, but God, I want to. I want to be one of those whom God causes all things to work together for good that they may be glorified in his presence forever. I want that. To you, I just say this. Lay aside for the moment the question of election and just listen to the author of election. That is the author of salvation say to you, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So if you are anyone who thirsts and whoever believes, you can come. Don't you dare pit one word of Christ against another. Jesus does not say, if anyone thirsts for the water of salvation, let him first determine whether he be elect. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come. So come to Christ and drink deeply of the waters of the salvation which he provides. And if you do, you're one of the elect.